You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for the power of your word. Lord, thank you for this church family and the people that are gathered here today. And Lord, I pray that you would help me to speak and to preach clearly, to speak your word. Uh, Not so that Joe's voice or what Joe thinks or what Joe wants to say would be heard, but so that what you think and so that your voice and so that what you want to say would be heard. I pray, Father, that you would remove me from this, so to speak, and just use me as your mouthpiece. Pray, God, that you would take the meditations of my heart and mind um, this week And God, I pray that you would use them to bring you honor and glory and and cause them, use them to do much good in your people and the people that are gathered here. God, we beg you to do these things, knowing and trusting that if you don't speak, Lord God, uh, our time here is useless. So please come and speak to us in your word. In Jesus' name, and everybody said? Amen. Amen. So hey, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. We've been in this series for uh, just a, a few weeks here. Looking at spending about the next nine months there, which I think is super awesome, nine to ten months. It might be even longer than that. Um, uh, If you're new here, this is the way we like to study through the Scripture, slowly but surely, verse by verse, through a book so that we can just really hear the thrust of what God wants to say to us in His Word rather than just bouncing around topic to topic or verse to verse. Um, And so that's why we are in the book of Ephesians. And I'll be honest with you, this morning I don't have a catchy story um, to introduce this message Uh, I don't have a great video or a great graphic or anything like that. I really just have one question. One question that I want you to be thinking about that I pray God would use uh, for our growth. Here's the question. Is the power of God enough for you? That's the question. Is the power of God enough for you? And here's what I know. I know that our knee-jerk reaction here when we hear that question is to give like a Sunday school answer, right? We talk about that quite a bit, a Sunday school answer of like, yes, yes, God, God is powerful enough, right? God is powerful enough for me. Um, we, we have a tendency to kind of blow by the work that God can do in a question like that. But really, here's the deal. It's not a question of, is God powerful enough? I hope you can see the nuance here. It's not a question of, is God powerful enough? It's really a question of, have you found that sweet spot where God is powerful enough for you? Have you found that sweet spot where the power of God has become enough for you, where you rest and rely upon his power? With that question in mind, let's go to the text. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. Paul prays this. He prays the eyes of our hearts would be open, right? We talked about that last week. Praise the eyes of our hearts would be open to this. The immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave to him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so here's what's going on in this passage. The Apostle Paul, the author of the book of Ephesians, he's on his knees, okay? That's the picture 
I want you to have in your head. Apostle Paul, Apostle Paul is on his knees and he's praying for the Ephesian believers. And what he's praying for them is that God would open the eyes of their hearts to the power of God in the resurrection and the power of God in heaven and the power of God in the church. That's what he's praying, is that our eyes would be open to the power of God and that the power of God would be enough for us. Number one, to break this down a little bit, um, the power of God in the resurrection is enough for you. That's really kind of the first thing that I see the Apostle Paul saying. The power of God in the resurrection is enough for you. When the Apostle Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts would be open to the power of the resurrection, here's what he does. He minces no words. He doesn't mince or cut any words whatsoever. He doesn't summarize this much at all. In fact, he uses massive words to describe what he's talking about. Here's what he says. I'm praying that you would see, catch the words, the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. What Paul is actually doing is he is using a whole bunch of massive synonymous words to build this picture for us. Think about the impact of these words and phrases. Immeasurable greatness. Just think about the impact of that phrase. Immeasurable greatness. Unmeasurable. His power towards us who believe. The working of his great might. Working and might put together. It's working might. The working of his great might. Put together again, powerful words. Words of power. Words of energy. This is what God is doing, the working of his great might. That he worked, there's another word, worked, right? That he worked in Christ when he what? Raised him from the dead. These are massive power words in the Greek language that help us to understand what Paul is trying to say. What Paul is doing is he's using a pile-up method. He's piling more words on top of more words, on top of more words, on top of more words to pile up this big mountainous picture of doctrine for us so that we can see the power source that we are connected to or so that we can see the power source that God wants us to be connected to, okay? It's kind of like saying, you might look at it this way, um, it's kind of like if you ever looked for a home, if you ever looked for a home to live in, uh, needed to move, um, and you found a home, and, and you might say something like this, that Home is the most beautiful, gorgeous, pristine, wonderful home you could ever buy. It's enough, right? That would be an illustrative way of doing what Paul is doing here, piling on more adjectives and words to describe the fact that the power of God is enough. Just like that home would be enough for you. But why? Why? Why is Paul doing this? Why is Paul making such a big deal out of this? I don't want us to just kind of stop and go, well, because it's about the power of God. Duh, hello, pastor. Okay, I get it, but follow me for a minute so we can think. Why is Paul making such a big deal out of it? I think he's making a big deal out of this uh, simply because the power of the empty tomb had radically affected him. I think that's part of the reason. That for the apostle Paul... The power of the empty tomb had radically affected his own life. And because it had radically affected his own life, what he wanted more than anything else is for that same power of the empty tomb to affect the Ephesian believers' lives. 
He had come to believe that the power of the resurrection was enough for him. And since he'd come to believe that and to know that and to, and to like feel that and to live that, he wanted everyone around him to live the same way. You ever get excited about something? If you're excited about his favorite TV show or, or a favorite new food, and then, and then you want to tell everybody. That's what Paul's doing. He's wanting to tell everybody. He wants everybody to experience this same power of the resurrection in their lives. But let's drill this down just a little bit more. Let's keep drilling, right? How had the power of the resurrection become enough for the Apostle Paul? How did this actually happen? Paul, Paul at one point had thought that he had everything he ever needed. He, he at one point thought that he had everything that he really ever needed. Before meeting Paul, before meeting Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, on the road to Damascus. He had power. Okay? He had fortune. Uh, he, had, he had fame. And honestly, the Apostle Paul was on the road to vocational success at a rate that would have made all sorts of other people jealous. That's, that's who the Apostle Paul was. His name was Saul then. And in a sense, Paul believed that he had more than enough before meeting Christ, really. But don't hear me wrong. Apostle Paul wasn't a nice guy. His name was Saul. Saul had become successful and powerful and famous off of a certain skill that he had, um, which reminds me of a certain movie. It's called Taken. A certain set of skills, right? I will find you. <laughs> Paul, when he was Saul, had a certain set of skills. <coughs> Very similar certain set of skills. His skill was hunting down Christians and hurting them. <coughs> but nevertheless, even though that was his skill and that's what he lived in, he was powerful, he was successful, he was famous. And so the question is, is like, what changed the day that he met Jesus? What changed that day on the road to Damascus? What, what significance or power did the resurrected Christ have on Paul's daily life? This is a question we got to ask ourselves too, right, at some point. How did Paul go from being a dude who on the one hand believed that his effort and all that he accomplished was enough for him, how did he move from being that guy to then becoming the guy who decided that the power of God and the resurrection was now enough for him? How, how did that transition from this person to this person actually happen? I mean, I think this is what happened. I, 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 think, I think that part of the answer is I, I think that just previous to meeting Jesus, um, we know that he was this religious dude who thought he could work hard, right, to earn God's love. That, that was where he was. And one of the things I don't think that, that, that was happening prior to meeting Jesus is I don't think he realized the depth of his own wickedness or his own sin. And I think that in a moment... When, when, when Paul's identity, when it once was wrapped up in, in what he could accomplish apart from Christ, that then when he met Christ, that all changed, right? How, how did that transformation take place? I think this is what happened. I think Paul met the only person who holds the power over life and, life and death, and he knew it. Once he realized and got it here and got it here in his heart, his mind and his heart, once he realized that he met the only person that holds the power over life and death, I think it set him free. On that day, Paul met the only person who holds the power to freedom from sin. He met the only person who is the essence of perfection. 
He felt the weight of the depth of his own sin in light of the presence of the power of the resurrected Christ. This is what happened that day, and it radically transformed him. He met the personification of power, and it's almost like Paul, who, who was like a dark light bulb previous to meeting Jesus, was now lit up in the power of the resurrected Jesus. Quite simply, the power of God in the resurrection became enough for the apostle Paul at the flip of a switch. It became enough for him. So what, what significance or power does the resurrection have in your daily life? Like when I stop and think about that question, when I think about the effect of the power of God in the resurrection on my life, I'm deeply humbled. I am deeply humbled because I know who I used to be. And I know how I still struggle. And yet, even in light of who I used to be and even in light of my still current struggles, Jesus stands in pristine, unexplainable, immeasurable, beyond powerful, unfathomable greatness in contrast to my weakness. And he loves me completely. He loves me enough. That is unimaginable. It's unimaginable, infinite power that blows my mind. Jesus died for me. Do you know that this morning? Do you know that Jesus died for you? He died for me. He died for me and the tomb is empty. He beat Satan, sin, and the grave. And I am his possession now. I am, I am twice his, right? Priceless, not worthless. Chosen, not forgotten. Planned, not an afterthought. Adopted, not fatherless. Eyes open, not blind. That's who I am. Is that who you are? It's the power of the resurrection is enough for you. Again, what does that thought provoke within you? When you think about this, what does it provoke within me? I'm not asking how do we feel about this. Um, what, what I'm asking is what is this effect, effect? What is this cause within you? Not the effect, oh, it makes me feel this way, but the effect. It causes me. It motivates me. It compels me to X, Y, Z. How does this compel you when you think about this truth? What does it cause you to want to do? It's the question I'm asking myself. Here's what it causes me to want to do. It causes me to want to love Jesus. It causes me to want to become like Jesus or to talk like Jesus or to act like Jesus or to live like Jesus. Do you want that too? Am I the only one in the room that wants to live like Jesus, talk like Jesus, act like Jesus, be like Jesus? No. The power of the resurrection for me is what it makes me want to do. It makes me want to love people more. It makes me want to live in the joy of my salvation more, to strive for peace with others more, to be more patient, to be more kind, to be more good, to be more faithful, and to live a more spirit-led, self-controlled life. That's the fruit of the spirit, right? That's, that's, that's who I want to become as the power of God courses in me. This is the power of God power of God in the resurrection is enough for you. Number two, the power of God from heaven is enough for you as well. 
And as we think about the power of God from heaven, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think for a minute about powerful people in powerful places. So shift your thinking. Powerful people in powerful places. Think about the president in the White House, okay? Love him or hate him. (laughs) Think about the president in the White House. Uh, Or think about a king in a castle. A presidents and kings have authority and control because they are seated in a place of power, right? Think about that. They actually have that power because they are seated in a place of power and authority. Therefore, everyone in their kingdom, everyone, everyone in their kingdom at that time is under their sovereign rule, right? Their power is not intrinsic to who they are. They weren't born with this power. Their power is given to them by their title and their seat in a powerful place. Okay? With God, it's different. It's radically different. God isn't powerful because we um, gave him a title of powerful. God isn't powerful because he has a seat in heaven. The, the, the throne of God and the place of heaven that God is in is powerful, not because of the place, but because of the person. God himself is powerful. It was, it's intrinsic to him. Can you turn the mic down? <laughs> Thank you. It's hugely distracting to me. I can't think straight. Um, With God, it's different. God isn't powerful because we gave him a title of powerful. He isn't powerful because he has a seat in heaven. The throne that God sits on and the locational place of heaven that he sits in are both powerful because God himself is powerful. He is the one intrinsically that brings that power to that seat and to that place. And what Paul wants is he wants the eyes of our hearts to be open to the immense power of God from heaven in our daily lives. Why? Because the power of God from heaven is enough for us. This is why the Apostle Paul prays that we would see that God has seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In other words, the power of heaven exists, right? Because God, who is the personification of power, is seated there. Every other ruler is under his powerful authority. Every person on earth who has ever been born, who will ever be born, is under God's powerful authority. Every current and future season of everyone's life is under God's powerful authority. How? How does this connect to our daily lives? Again, I want you to think of the Apostle Paul for a minute, the author, right, as he's writing. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's sitting in a hole-in-the-ground jail cell for preaching the gospel. That's where he's at. That's where he's writing from. Paul's not writing from a throne. Paul's not writing this from a place of power. He's writing from a place of oppression, And he's praying that God would open the eyes of the hearts of the Ephesian believers to the power of God from heaven. And I want you to think about the Ephesian believers, the people that are receiving this from Paul. These Ephesian believers are are living in a city that is 
absolutely hostile to the message of the gospel. The Ephesian believers are being oppressed by the Roman power that is there. That they're living as minority in that culture. That's the context. And his, his literal prayer, the literal prayer that Paul prays out of the context of being in jail into the context of living in a hostile environment is that the Ephesian believers would experience the power of God from heaven in the daily context that they're living in. When Paul prays this, he's simply praying that the Ephesian believers would experience the power of God from heaven and they would find this power to be enough for them. <laughs> Reminds me of a picture of heaven on earth. It's really what Paul is praying, right? That there would be an experience of heaven for us on earth. When I think of this story, when I think of this context, I think of my own experience as a pastor, because that's the context I kind of live in, right? My context as a pastor, I think of believers in this church, categorically, new believers learning to walk in repentance, older believers learning to walk in obedience, other believers facing extremely painful circumstances, lonely people, angry people, hurting people, negligent people, sinful people, broken people, fearful people, pride-filled people. And, 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 and into this context, as I think about this as a pastor, um, Paul's prayer becomes clear for me. There is no struggle in repentance that God isn't powerful enough for. There is no struggle in obedience that God's power isn't enough for. Are you struggling with obedience to God's word right now? Are you struggling in your walk of repentance right now? God's power from heaven is enough for you. There's no painful experience that God's power isn't sufficient for. There's no loneliness that God's power won't suffice. There's no anger or pain or negligence, or sinfulness, or brokenness, or fear, or pride that God's power can't handle. There's no shame or guilt that is more powerful than God's power from heaven. That's what he offers you and I in the cross and the empty tomb of Christ, his power from heaven. And what God wants what God wants is for you to be connected to him as your power source. He wants himself to be your power source. He wants you to light up. He wants your life to light up like a city on a hill, like a lamp on a stand next to a bed, like a window in a house after dark. He wants your life to light up like a light bulb. Why? So that other people can actually see his work in your life. The power of heaven from God is available to you so that your life can be lit up so that others can see him, not you. That's the power that's available to you and I. And the question, is that enough for you? Follow-up statement is, it is enough. <coughs> but have you found that place of resting in his power from heaven? Some people ask me sometimes, how to repent from sin? And it's a really great question that we could talk forever about. 
How do I repent from making this relationship a mess? How do I repent from being irresponsible with my money? How do I repent from um, just being negligent? I mean, the list goes on. How do I repent from watching pornography? How do, I, how do I repent from being addicted to this drug? How do I, rep- I mean, the list goes on and on and on. How do I repent from that? And it's, it's a perfect question. It's a great question. It's a question that all Christians should want to answer with one another and that every pastor should want to answer with, with people, right? A part of the answer is this. Part of the answer, because I can't give us the full answer today because there's not enough time, but part of the answer is that you have to be connected to a true life-giving source. Your mind and your heart have to be captured by the hope of heaven. Listen, hope or heaven, heaven is the future hope of a believer, right? Heaven is the future vision, the future picture of a believer's best life now. That's what heaven is. And if you don't have a vision of heaven, then sin will be the heaven that you pursue now, even though you know deep down inside that sin leads to hell. If you don't have a picture of heaven rooted in your mind, the heaven you will pursue is sin now. Maybe a practical way um, to think about even applying this portion of this text to our lives as we walk out of here soon like think about this what if we all went home today and we begin to pray this prayer that Paul prays with urgency over our own lives and over the lives of the people that we love what if we did that for a year once a week or every day if we prayed this same prayer can you imagine the way that God might answer that prayer in helping us to rest in and to operate from and to live from and be married in and to handle our money with and the list goes on and on. What if we could live that way from a place of being connected to the power of God in the resurrection and, and the power of God from heaven and now finally here in a minute, the power of God in the church. Because that's point three. The power of God in the church is enough as well. I think we need for a minute about some of the most powerful and influential families. We talked about presidents or kings in castles, right? Talked about powerful people in powerful places. Now I want you to think about some of the most powerful and influential families. Again, we always refer to the church like a family. Some of the most powerful and influential families that have, have existed in our country, names that pop for us like the Bush family or the Buffett family, the Kennedys, the Trumps, the Obamas, I mean, or the Clintons. I mean, these are some powerful families, we can argue all day long about whether you like them or hate them, like their policies, hate their policies, like their influence, hate their influence. Not the point for me this morning. The powerful and these people, their families, the influence of their power, man, it reaches a long ways. It could be experienced throughout the world, right? That's powerful in terms of a family. Those families that I just listed off and many more, their influence has and their power and their authority has been felt across the globe for sure. Really, it's no different with the church. It's no different with the church. And in fact, it's even better with the church. It's better with the church because the power of God in the church has eternal consequences in people's lives. This is why the Apostle Paul prays that God would open the eyes of our hearts, right, 
to the power of God in the church so that we could see that when Jesus rose from the dead and left the tomb empty, when he beat the, the power of Satan, the power of evil, when he, when he beat the power of sin that is intrinsic to us because we've been born into a sinful, fallen world, when he beat those two things, and when he beat death that day, when he said, death no longer has a hold over me and those that belong to me, and then he ascended to heaven, on that day after his resurrection, what the text says, uh, says to us is that God put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to what? To the church, which is what? His body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. See, the, the reason that I can stand in front of you today with confidence that the power of God in the church is enough is because Paul tells us that Christ is the head. Everybody reach up and grab your head. Okay? That's, now turn your head with your hand. Okay? Your head is attached to what? The neck. And the neck is attached to what? Your body. What happens to your body if someone lobs your head off? You die, right? You would effectively say, if somebody came in and cut my head off right now, you would say, Joe died. Agreed? Well. <laughs> Unless in some sort of miraculous um, sci-fi way, my head became back, attached back to my body. And you would say, wow, he beat death. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, Jesus is the head of the church. Okay? His body. He is the head on top of that body. Jesus' head is what keeps the body of the church alive. The church, then, is the full representation. Think again. If you cut my head off, and then you just stood my body up over here, would my body be a full representation of who I am anymore? No. Why? Well, because my head's over there. See, this is what happens when you take Jesus out of the church, and you start preaching, like, self-help theology, and social concern, not that Jesus isn't concerned about those things, but when we make those bigger than Jesus himself, um, then we effectively remove the head from the body, and what happens to those bodies? They die. they die, right? And so what Paul is saying is, hey, Jesus is the head of his body, the church, which means that with the head, Jesus attached to the body of the church, that church then is the full representation of Christ himself on earth. Jesus is the one who fills the church with power. And Jesus is the one who fills the church with influence. Jesus is the one who helps the church grow. Jesus is the one who sustains the church. Jesus is the one who grows people. Jesus does this so that he can spread his influence and his power and his authority to the ends of the earth with the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is enough for salvation. Romans, right? gospel is powerful for salvation so that people could be saved. The power of God in the church is enough. So some of you might be thinking, um, like, we're just a poor little church, right? Like, uh, what, what kind of powerful influence do we really have? You might be thinking, we're just a young church that's struggling to stay alive. Some of you might think that as you hear this. Um, I will tell you, I thought that as I wrote this for a moment. But can I just challenge us? 
as the Lord challenged me, even as I, as I, as I, as I wrote this and, and thought about it, um, why, why would I, why would any of us want to sell the power of God short by believing that we are too small or too poor to make a lasting difference? Why would we want to sell God's power short? If he can leave a tomb empty, he can certainly change that thing that's been in control of your life. If he can leave a tomb empty, he can certainly do far more powerful things in us as a church family than we could ever possibly dream of or imagine. What if our dreams have just been too short, too small, and too, lo- too little for the infinite God that we serve? Why do we want to sell him short? Can you imagine where you and I would be today you think about this again from the context of a church, if that was the dominating thought that our leaders had here, I can surely tell you this is not the dominating thought that we have. Our dominating thought is that the church of Jesus Christ is the hope of the world because it is the bride of Christ and it is the body of Christ. Jesus is the head of the church and he certainly isn't going to let his body fall apart and he certainly isn't going to abandon his bride for another woman. That's not what Jesus does. Even though the church is imperfect and stubborn and negligent and prideful and spotted with sin, Jesus gave himself at the cross for her. He wasn't just willing to die for her. He was ready since before the foundations of the world to die for her. The power of God in the church is enough. This is why I can boldly stand in front of you week after week after week after week, not only in gatherings like this, but in one-on-one appointments and in small groups. I can be with you week after week after week and call you to turn away from your sin. I can call you to turn away from your sin, from your negligence, and from your wandering, to turn away from prostituting yourself out to other gods, I can call you that way because I have confidence in God himself and the power of the empty tomb and the power from heaven and the power within the church. I can do this with confidence because the gods of negligence and the gods of self-indulgence, they are powerless. They are powerless. Those gods will influence people straight to hell. But the power of God in the resurrection and the power of God from heaven and the power of God in the local church, it's enough. So the question is, will you turn to Christ in these moments? Will you leave behind those dead gods of sexual impurity or greed or selfishness, bitterness, backstabbing or divisiveness or negligence? Will you leave those powerless gods behind? Will you cling to Christ who is your Savior? Will you cling to Christ in these moments because he is, in fact, the powerful king of the world? Like, this is the power of God on display in this text. And the power of God is enough. I want you to watch this video. Israel. He's a king of righteousness.
righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your head. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. And so I don't, I don't have a catchy story to end things with, kind of like I started. I just had the same question that we started with, though. Um, is the power of God enough for you? Again, I know our knee-jerk reaction is to give the Sunday school answer of, yeah, it's enough. Remember, the question isn't, um, is God powerful enough? The question is, have you found that sweet spot where the power of God has become enough for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for your immense, immeasurable power. God, I pray that you would continue to move us, to grow us, to shape us. 
Help us to become people who rest in your great power for us. Help us to live in the power of the resurrection. Help us to help us to understand and to believe and to trust in the power from heaven. I pray that your power would be manifest in our church family. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.